The OSHA 3030 celebrates its 100th episodes today, and we are joined today by Commissioner Amanda Lihau, Commissioner at the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. And today, for the next 30 minutes or so, we will spend time talking with Commissioner Lihau, learning from her experiences as Commissioner, and gaining insight uh, from her perspective as Commissioner at the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission on this, the November 17th, 2021 episode of the OSHA 3030. Welcome everyone to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I'm joined today by Commissioner Amanda Lihau. I am Monish Rath. I'm a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, DC. And I am a, an attorney who engages in the practice of occupational safety and health law. And as I said before, we're honored to be joined today by Commissioner Lihau, who is a commissioner at the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Commissioner, welcome and thank you for joining us at the OSHA 3030. Thank you very much, and um, I am so honored to be here at your 100th uh, episode. Um, I remember back in my previous experiences having um, participated in this, I think, when you launched it. So um, I really uh, appreciate the invite and happy to be here. Well, we're grateful as well. And uh, Commissioner, I guess the first question I should ask you, as you say, we've known each other for a number of years, worked together in the good cause. And... Uh, so, so now that you are a commissioner at the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, is it okay if I address you as Commissioner Lyle? Sure, sure. Thank okay. you for asking. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so, Commissioner, let's get started. I think first we have uh, a large community of in-house counsel, safety and health professionals, and others who are, including folks at enforcement agencies and the media, who, who join in as part of our OSHA 3030 community, both in the live webinar as well as on podcast and YouTube. And so, so they come from different levels of experience or familiarity. And I suppose the first thing I'd like to do for that reason is just make sure everyone understands the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Many of them do, but it's, it's also sometimes misunderstood. For one thing, it's not a part of the Department of Labor and it is not a part of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. That, that is absolutely correct. And I can tell you, we, um, in my council role previous to this and now with this, we've been trying to do a lot of educating of the community. Um, there are very oftentimes people ask me my policy goals at OSHA. And I said, you, you'll have to go to OSHA to ask that because we're independent. <laughs> That's right. The Act, the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, it, it called for the establishment of three different agencies. Under uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, it called for a research institution, NIOSH, and it called for uh, the creation of OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health uh, Administration, as a agency of the Department of Labor. And that is a, an agency that makes regulations and enforces them. And then there is a completely independent agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, run by three commissioners, of which you are one, and it is a tribunal where employers and OSHA can take their contested matters to an administrative law judge. And it works all the way up to the very highest level, which is the review commission itself, the panel of three commissioners. Did that say it about right? Yes, that's absolutely right. There's, um, 
just um, if I guess you look at it, it, sort of your chart here, the um, rate uh, below us is the trial level. So you look at it as a as a court, if you will, um, where you have an administrative law judge who conducts the trial level um, and all of the um, hearing uh, motions, et cetera. And then once that is decided by the administrative law judge, then um, the case, if either party chooses would come to the full tribunal, the three commissioners. And it's an appellate level of review, as you say. Yes, yes. And it looks like looking at this chart here, that there's about a dozen administrative law judge positions. Yes, that's correct. Are they all filled, filled right now? Um, I believe they are at this time. Um, the latest um, person was hired uh, probably about a year and some change ago over in uh, Denver, in the Denver region. And that's one of the big challenges for the Review Commission is to constantly make sure that there's, there's enough law judges, administrative law judges to, to keep the case uh, flow Correct. Going. Correct. And I think, you know, as with any agency, I'm sure that our, our chief judge, uh, Judge Rooney, would um, appreciate as many resources as she could get her hands on. But with with uh, the government, the way it is, it's, you know, you could always use more, um, but she does have a full complement right now. That's great. Judge Rooney, who's been an administrative law judge with the Review Commission for many, many years and is an institution in occupational safety and health law. Yes. So, so you said that the the administrative law judges serve at, as basically the trial level, and they rec they receive the parties. The parties present evidence. They go through pretrial, like discovery and exchange of discovery, and then they they have a hearing and they present evidence, and then the administrative law judge renders an opinion. Yes, that is correct. Mm -hmm. And then a party may appeal to the review commission to hear it as a full commission. Yes. Um, there is a time period, just like with any appeal that you might have in a state court or federal court, where um, they have 30 days from that decision of the administrative law judge, um, either the employer, um, if they're dissatisfied with the decision, or the Secretary of Labor, who is the other party um, on our cases, to um, appeal to the commission, full commission, um, to hear the case um, on review. And... What are the other ways that a case can come to the review commission uh, as a appellate level of review? So, I, so in, in my tenure, I haven't seen this happen, but we, um, the commissioners could um, see a case coming up from the administrative law judges because we are informed when they do have a decision um, and we're able to review that decision as soon as it um, comes out. And if we see a case and the time clock is ticking down and we haven't seen an appeal come to us yet, we could um, basically take that case, go to the party or parties and say, we want to take the case on review. And I, I don't, I would have to go back and see <laughs> when the last time that was, but I think, um, you know, obviously it would be of a novel, um, you know, issue, maybe looking at a new standard that might've come out, um, where neither party has has is sure, um, you know whether they should appeal or not. But I, it, as I said in my tenure, I I have not seen that yet. But theoretically, any one commissioner who's made that determination could cause a case to come up to the commission for review. Correct. Yes, and actually, when one party does petition us, um, it only takes the one one commissioner to decide that they want to take it. Um, right. So three, yeah. three commissioners don't have to vote on it and a majority. Rules. Correct.
Correct. That's um, what it's the only time that it, we only need one of us to uh, to basically take something up. Everything else in terms of motions that might come before us, um, interlocutory appeals that come before us, um, or um, the case decision itself, we do have to have a quorum of two. And then there's one more opportunity for the parties to appeal a matter, and it's really uh, almost almost the last chance, and that's to uh, appeal a case to the to the federal uh, Article Three court, which is a a uh, in, in this particular case, it's called for in the statute that it would go to the, a U.S. Court of Appeals uh, at the circuit court level, and that would be either be in the circuit in which the case arose or in the District of Columbia uh, circuit, the D.C. circuit. Yes, that is that is correct. And again, once once we um, issue a decision, um, and this is an interesting point that we've um, actually been discussing since we issued new rules of procedure a couple of years ago, is once we issue our decision, um, we basically hand that if it does get appealed to the circuit or DC circuit, um, we hand that case over, and then our jurisdiction is no longer. At the commission, um, which attorneys in the listening to this would understand, but our jurisdiction would kind of would actually cease to exist because then the case is really with the circuit now. And they could send it back down for additional evidence to be taken, and in which case jurisdiction is reclaimed, I suppose. Yes, once they if they issue a decision and ask the commission to to um, do something or review something, yes, it would come back to us. And we've had a few of those come up over over the last few years. So Commissioner, let's talk uh, a little bit inside Washington. I'm curious, uh, so share with my audience, I remember the day it happened, but share with my audience how, uh, when you became com a commissioner at the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Um, so I uh, went, I was confirmed in January of 2020, um, but prior to that, um, we, the year, previous year in 2019, um, we had a vacancy on the commission. Um, our former chair, uh, McDougal, um, left her seat. Um, and because of that vacancy, I was um, notified that um, someone had put my name forward to the White House um, to be considered um, as, an, as the new commissioner and serving out uh, Chairman McDougal's term. Um, that is the process and and you basically your name gets put forward or you put your name forward and then you go through an interview process at the white house a background check by the fbi and then your name gets submitted to capitol hill because it's because i'm in a senate confirmed position so i go before the um, senate committee of jurisdiction which is the health education labor policy uh, and pensions committee and then after that um, whatever that timetable looks like um, you go through an interview process, um, a vote in committee, and then you go to the Senate floor for a vote. So it can take several, several months. So I think from the time I was, um, my name was submitted to the time, it was March or late March of 2019. And then I was confirmed in January of 2020. So <laughs> that is a long time. <laughs> it is. Um, and sometimes there are hiccups in terms of um, where you are in the process of your FBI check and whether that is taking longer or whether the Senate is jammed up with um, a whole host of things, um, including, you know, impeachment trials over the last few years or whether they just have a lot of um, 
a lot of uh, legislation on their docket. I uh, I need to have things planned tomorrow, next week, <laughs> and the next four months, six months, 10 years. So I applaud you for having gone through that process from March of 2019 through January of 2020, I think you said, yeah. uh, with that level of uncertainty um, hanging over your head. I think that's impressive that, that, uh, that people can withstand that as you did. Uh, so, so to be clear, and I, I just met uh, Commissioner McDougall exactly a week ago. Um, you're essentially fulfilling the vacancy left by Commissioner McDougall. That's correct. And then when you joined in January, the commission was composed of, I believe you as well as Commissioner Atwood and Commissioner Sullivan was still there. Yes, that's true. It was um, the it was three of us uh, because Commissioner Atwood. Um, I'll, I'll back up a bit. Commissioner Atwood's term um, actually had expired in April of 2019. So at that point in time, um, Chair Sullivan was the lone commissioner from the time of uh, the beginning of May of 2019 until January of 2020, until Commissioner Atwood and myself were confirmed by the Senate. And I wanna to get to that in a second, because there are <laughs> moments in the 50 year, uh, 50 year history of the Review Commission where there's only been two commissioners of the three uh, possible positions and one commissioner, and, and you just described one instance where Commissioner Sullivan was there by himself. But at, in, in January, when you are confirmed and sworn in, there are now three commissioners. How long did that last? That lasted for about a year and a half. So, so that's a, a great yeah. year and a half for the commission. Yes, it was. Um, uh, I think the important thing to understand is the three of us, um, and soon to be hopefully uh, Commissioner Harthill, who's now um, going through the confirmation process, um, we um, all have staggered terms. So we don't all serve for the six years all at the same time. So because I'm fulfilling um, former Chair McDougall's seat, I had four years. And so my commission will end in April of 2023. Um, Chair Atwood will, um, hers will end in 2025. And then um, Commissioner Harthill will, once she is confirmed, would end in 2027. So that there's never, the way that it works is that, yes, there might be one commissioner at certain periods of time, but that the commission wouldn't be fully vacant at the same time, unless we all three decided to leave at the same time for whatever reason. Well, thank you for explaining that process and that history of the past two years, because I think that the constantly changing composition uh, is elemental to uh, we, we talked about de uh, determining whether a case uh, can get sent up for review and just one commissioner can make that decision. But then to actually decide a case, you need a majority of the three potential positions, uh, uh, commissioner positions. Yes, that's true. Um, so right now we have two of us. So we um, would, we'll take up a case and the hope is during our deliberation, um, and we do have um, a deliberation meeting on the case that the hope is that the two of us would agree on the outcome um, and that we could go forward with a two to nothing decision, which I think um, our website, you can look at all of our decisions that we've issued, but um, we're pretty, we are very proud of the fact that the, that we have been able to issue some decisions with just the two of us currently. I've made uh, that comment to others in the OSHA law community before that the fact that there's only two commissioners and they've been nominated by opposing uh, political parties and they have, and that Commissioner Laihau and Commissioner Atwood have been able to render decisions on, on what I think are important areas of uh, OSHA law, 
uh, is a testament, I think, to, to what remarkable people both uh, commissioners are, that they can, they can find the areas of common ground to mm-hmm. continue to conduct the business of the Review Commission. I, I can't imagine that that's always easy, but when you and Commissioner Atwood have, have done it, it has always been impressive to me. Thank you very much. I, we're, as I said, we're both very proud of that. And um, we are looking forward to, to having um, uh, Susan Harthill join us. Um, I do think there are going to be, um, again, our docket is public. So uh, I think there will be some very difficult cases that the three of us will be taking up. And so to have that third voice um, on the commission will be very important. Um, you know, as as holding a position as counsel to Commissioner Sullivan prior to this, it's very important. The councils, three councils of the commissioners work together and there's a lot of negotiating that goes on back and forth to see if um, if one commissioner is almost quite on board, but not quite, if there's some way to get them on board. Um, and, you know, I liken the council position to a clerk um, in a circuit court or a Supreme Court that they're working behind the scenes to find um, any case law or any any other um, legal issue that you could get the three to to agree on, um, ultimately deciding the outcome of a case for three to nothing. That that doesn't always happen, of course, um, and I can, you can probably see that in the cases when we had three of us, or then previously when Chairman McDougall was there, um, there was um, disagreement on the case law and how to apply it. Um, but I think that that's also healthy for the commission and healthy for the audiences who this affects, that you have um, sometimes a three nothing opinion, but you also sometimes have a two one where where you can um, see where the application of the law uh, falls out. So how difficult has it been to look at cases where perhaps you get the sense that the commissioners having only two right now have not been able to agree and what happens to the case at that point? So we, Again, I'll pat ourselves on the back a little bit. We haven't had that come up with um, Chair Atwood and myself. Um, what I can say is that um, if there is an impasse, um, obviously the administrative law judge's um, decision would hold as as the law as the law at the time, um, or maybe there's um, a way to table the case at that point in time. Um, or just not take it up at all, knowing that it's such a very um, novel issue or it's a very difficult issue and um, not sure where we would you know, fall down on that case. Obviously we don't know how we're going to decide until we get into the deliberation meeting. So it's a, it's a fine line that um, the chair who sets the agenda of what cases to take when um, it's, it's her, it's the fine line of, of not really reading the tea leaves, but kind of um, understanding, you know, where we may decide on a case. But at the end of the day, if we take up a case and we are at an impasse, then we're at an impasse. Um, and we may issue a decision of a one-to-one. And again, um, it would then fall to the administrative law judge. But it's still subject to the possibility of appeal to a U.S. Circuit Court? Correct. Yes, it is. So that's an interesting possibility. I don't recollect such a case. Maybe there are, there are some that I, I'm not aware of or I don't recollect, but a, a decision that's one and one dissent, uh, I, I wonder what the uh, precedential value of such a decision would be. Yeah, I don't, 
I'm not sure. I obviously we haven't seen it um, since I've been there. And I don't recall even before my tenure of, of folks talking about that. I don't think the commission in general likes to do that because right. it doesn't really set up good case law for for your clients or for the Department of Labor. So you really want some clarity um, on these standards and when when they're actually citable offenses and when they're not. So uh, I think it's not good for the legal, the OSH law community to have a one-one. Um, and, you know, a case could actually automatically go to the circuit anyway. So if there were the two of us and someone wants to just go to to the circuit, I suppose they could, or they could wait out the 30-day time period here, um, or they just kind of <laughs> wait out the time period for us to get a third commissioner. So um, it all just, you know, it's it's kind of shooting the dice a little bit on that. But again, we haven't um, had an impasse um, as evidenced by the cases that we've we've issued decisions on. Right. And they've been, I think, extremely instructive decisions. So I'm thankful that they've been issued. Commissioner, I'm curious, uh, your your experience uh, prior to serving as commissioner was as, as counsel to the chair of the commission, but before that, you worked on labor and employment policy on behalf of U.S. manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And I've, I'm curious, now that you're a commissioner, how your experience working with manufacturers on labor and employment and occupational safety and health policy has has shaped your your ability to serve as a commissioner? Um, that's a great question. And um, one that actually was um, asked of me on, on the Hill when I was going through the process, confirmation process. Um, obviously, because I'm supposed to be very neutral, um, which I consider that I am, um, the policy side of things is a much different lens to look at um, because we were at the time with the manufacturers helping to shape the regulations that OSHA might put into place or how um, a regulation um, might need additional guidance from OSHA um, because of a particular workplace or a particular environment or a particular workforce. Um, working at the commission, you're working really within the four corners of that standard um, and not being um, you know, subject to the policy issues that I might've been um, working or advocating for um, uh, before in my time there. But it's looking at the application of that standard to this particular um, incident or the particular um, workplace environment at the time. Um, obviously there's a lot of cases we have where an injury occurs, um, a citation comes, and sometimes you have to step outside of that the injury and what happened with the injury and was the workplace, was there a site, an offense or a violative condition that irrespective of the injury, um, it was still there and present. Um, so you kind of have to take your, yourself out of um, however egregious the injury might be um, or the incident might be. Um, you're just looking at the standard, whereas before as a manufacturing lobbyist, I was looking at the whole um, you know, policy, the economic impact, the, um, is this manufacturing plant going to shut down because of the um, feasibility, you know, all of the costs that this is going to, co- you know, it, um, that the manufacturer is going to incur um, from implementing the standard. Um, so I think it's, it's very different to look through those two lenses. 
Um, I do think one very positive um, intersection is that I'm able to understand a workplace and how it runs uh, better because I was able to tour some manufacturing plants and talk to people on the ground um, and look at things and how they actually worked and how um, things were coming together in the manufacturing plant. So when I get a case in and I'm, you know, they're describing what type of business this is, I can kind of see this in my head about what what this business um, is producing and, and what the workplace might look like. This is, uh, I think, God has, has to have been a difficult transition to make because <laughs> you've, you've done the policy side for so many years, but, but I can understand now a lot better the different lenses that you have to look through uh, to, to evaluate a case when it comes to you. So thank you for explaining that. You're welcome. Um, next question. If you could change anything about the review commission procedures, what would you mm -hmm. change and why? Well, I think we've had to change <laughs> procedures over the last almost two years. Um, and I, I think it's a, while it wasn't, we weren't sure where we were gonna land in terms of how e efficient and effective we would be during um, a agency shutdown almost in terms of physical office space. I think going to a virtual Zoom, whatever platform world in terms of being able to conduct business has really um, helped in terms of getting things moving off of our docket. Um, because without having these platforms um, and conducting meetings virtually, we wouldn't have had the, when Commissioner Sullivan there, was there, um, we had 34 cases we decided and we did, I would say 95% of them via, via Zoom or um, another, another platform virtually. So we were able to still conduct business and I think that's, getting the government into that space, um, even though it was forced, I think it's a very good thing that government can still run and we can still hear cases and we can still um, effectuate, you know, the decisions in this world that we're living in now. I came over to the review commission to hear, just sit in the uh, pews to hear uh, a hearing. Uh, I think it was uh, heat stress, uh, yes. general duty clause citation. Commissioner uh, Sullivan was the chair at the time. And I don't think I realized at the time that I was listening to one of the last in-person hearings that we would have we would have experienced for a while. Right, I know, yeah, I don't think any of us did. And I would, I will say to follow up on your question, um, I do enjoy the oral argument piece of the job. And unfortunately we haven't been able to do that. And so I, I'm hopeful that, um, once we turn into 2022, that we might be able to take up a case um, for oral argument. Because I think it's, one, it's good for the parties. Um, it's good for us to ask these questions live as opposed to um, you know, asking our councils uh, about them. But it's also good for the public to be able to come in and see who we are and what we're doing and what things we're thinking about. Because if you go to any court or hear any Supreme Court argument, the, the questions you're sort of understanding, you know, where the mindset of a particular judge might be. So the questions we may ask, you might understand better where the mindset, um, where we're coming from might be. I thought, Commissioner, that one of the things you might say about anything you'd like to see changed might de deal with the three commissioner format. I know the Mine Safety uh, Commission, Review Commission has five commissioners, I think. And and uh, some some attorneys have done a comparison of the number of times where there was an insufficient quorum to render a decision mm -hmm. 
over the 50 year history of these two agencies, I've only analyzed the, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission um, statistics. And I came to the conclusion that about one out of every four years, mm-hmm. there is an insufficient, uh, <laughs> there's, there's vacancies on the commission so that there's an insufficient quorum to render decision, unless, of course, uh, extraordinary commissioners like you and Commissioner and I would have been able to arrive at a uh, consensus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one in four years out of 50 years means that there's been at least and this is an approximation because I didn't I didn't look date to date I just looked at years, but at least eleven years mm-hmm. of insufficient quorum uh, in the history of the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Uh, I believe that it came up in Congress as a proposed because it would need it would require a statutory amendment, and I think it came up in maybe two thousand four or nineteen ninety four. It was a while ago, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it doesn't have any currency at the moment. No, I think it's it's something that. Um, I know that Chair uh, Sullivan was very interested in learning more about the history um, of why we only have three as opposed to the five at the Mine Safety um, Commission. And, you know, NLRB has five, EEOC has five. So we're sort of in our own little, on our own island over here with three. Um, And I'm not quite sure, you know, why that decision was made. Um, But I think that there definitely would be interest in seeing that change, just simply from the statistics that you pointed to, but also um, I think in looking at research from this, I think EEOC might be the only one of the only agencies where you can actually have a holdover, which is another um, issue. And a holdover is so if when Commissioner Atwood's um, term expired in April of um, 2020 and 20, uh, April of 2019 a holdover would have allowed her to stay if she was going to get renominated to be to stay there until she's reconfirmed. Um, we don't, and that's very explicit um, for the EEOC. We don't have that at the commission either. So I think either having two more commissioners or allowing that holdover pr- provision for a few months would at least allow the commission to continue to issue case decisions and not have that um, gap, as as you would say, with just one commissioner, because um, as we know, the most recent was with Chair Sullivan, and he had about nine months by himself. And um, believe me, it's frustrating because the only thing he could do is take a case on review, um, but then the re- then the case sits on the docket. <laughs> so, yeah, Commissioner Sullivan uh, complained uh, that he had nothing to do or not yeah. enough to do. <laughs> Right. And, that, and that's unfortunate because the Commissioner Sullivan is extremely dedicated to the cause yes. of, of you know, promoting occupational safety and health. Uh, so I threw you my statistic, Commissioner, uh, mm-hmm. however imperfect that statistic might be. Do you have any statistics from the commission that review commission that you'd like to share with us? Sure. My, my inner uh, st- statistician loves these things. So <laughs> any inside statistics you'd like to share? Would yes. Helpful. Yes, sure. So um what we're very proud of the fact um, is that since um, Chair Atwood and I have been confirmed in January of 2020, um, and now through um, Chair Sullivan's um, term ending, we've actually decided at the commission level 38 cases. So, and before Cha- uh, Chair Sullivan left, that was um, 34 cases. So, with three of us, we were able to get through 34 cases in a pandemic world, <laughs> in a virtual world. Um, and now that's Chair, about three a month. 
Yes. So we were very, we were very busy. So um, even working from home, we were, we were doing a lot of work. Um, And then since uh, Chair Sullivan has uh, left, we've decided four cases um, and that's since April um, of this year. So um, we're navigating, um, you know, when those meetings will be back in person with each other Um, right now, um, I can tell you that we are still doing meetings virtually um, even if we are in the office, um, we're um, we have um, extensive protocol for safety um, of our coworkers, and um, and I can say that we um, you know we've been successful at it. So we'll continue until until we until we decide that we don't need to do that anymore in terms of a virtual world. Um, in the 2020 um, case statistics, um, getting onto your other statistics for you, um, we had. Um, 34 um, PDRs, Petitions for Discretionary Review. Um, and of those 34, we directed uh, 22 to, be, to come to the commission. Um, so that's a pretty, that's a pretty significant amount. Um, and then at the administrative law judges caseload in 2020, um, they had 3,093 cases. Um, and 1762 were without a hearing, which if, under our uh, procedures, we have that simplified proceedings, um, or there could have been a settlement um, prior to trial. So, um, so the commission's very busy, and we are taking a lot of cases. Um, you know, it's um, we've updated our pro- our procedures; those are online as well. Um, we are doing electronic filing now at the trial level, which um, is a good. Uh, we decided to do that before pandemic, so thank goodness um, we've updated our systems and. Um, parties know that they can file everything electronically. Um, and they are they are also at the trial level, at the ALJ level, they are conducting trials um, virtually as well. That was a welcome uh, development, the electronic filing. I was one yes. of the first <laughs> to be asked by the secretary, who I think uh, has a lot of the role of a clerk of court to, to participate in, in electronic filing to make sure it worked. And I'm glad that's up and running full steam. It's a, it's a great mm-hmm. development for the parties. Yes. So I'm going to ask you my last question, Commissioner, and this is a sure. question I should warn you. I ask of any time I'm in a conversation with a judge at the appellate review level, trial level, uh, anytime I run into a young person who has finished serving as a law clerk, uh, I'll even call her a, ba- a bailiff if I can. Uh, but the question is, you've seen a lot from the perspective of the bench of practices by litigators. And as a litigator, I'm dying to know what are the practices you've seen that you think attorneys could have done something better in order to better advocate for their clients, whether it was mm-hmm. on the uh, agency side or the employer side? Um, that's a great question. And um, I think it's an important one. I know that um, Chair Atwood talks about this um, as well at, uh, in her um, talks and our panel discussions that we've had over the years. But I think a very important thing that we've um, run into a few times is um, photographs that are in black and white and somehow they get into the record black and white and it's or they're very grainy and so when um, I guess submitting a photo into evidence make sure that it's very crystal clear and the the point um, because sometimes that's what we're looking at you know in terms of whether we can actually see it as a litigator you're living and breathing this case all the time. So you understand, you know, the, the small, small details, but us looking at it with fresh eyes, if we have a photograph and we can't 
necessarily see um, in looking at the transcript what you're referring to or what DOL is referring to, it makes it difficult for us to, to look at that very small, minute detail that might hinge one way or the other on how we decide the case. Um, I think also what we've run into is um, there are some times where we get a case and we'll look at the transcript and say, oh, they should have asked, you know, or why didn't they ask this follow-up question? Um, on, and again, it's either with the private bar or the Department of Labor. And so when developing your questions at trial, I would just maybe try to think of this as you might have to come before the commission um, on either side and say, you know, what would the next follow-up question be that a commissioner might be looking for? I, you know, obviously you all are very busy. And so the time spent on these cases I know is a lot, but um, there are a few times um, where we have looked at transcripts and we kind of will see some holes in the transcript or perhaps there should have been a witness called and maybe we don't know that that witness was unavailable um, or it doesn't work for the company anymore. Um, but we've, we've run into that sometimes um, um, as well as experts. Um, I know they're costly, but there are some instances where um, we feel as though the expert, um, either it's a report that's submitted into an, ev an evidence or just even testimony um, could have helped either side um, come the other, you know, go to the other, other direction from where we were deciding. Um, I think that's, that's important. I know that it's very important when you get into some technical cases. Um, or, um, um, so I think having an expert at the ready or even having a report um, from an expert is, is very important. Um, again, you know, I know Department of Labor with resources, um, sometimes that's an issue, but uh, sometimes it can make, make the decision easier for us in terms of where we see it falling. Um, so those are, those are little practice tips that I would, I would recommend. Those are great tips. And I'm, <laughs> I'm enriched uh, instantly by, by hearing those tips from, from you and, and the perspective that you bring to this is authoritative. Uh, I think with expert witnesses, the other place where they come in handy is when you look at uh, commonly accepted practices or good engineering yeah. practices or generally accepted uh, principles of, of safety and health that those who have experience in the industry uh, can, can shed light on that rather than mm -hmm. just leaving the parties to dispute the question right. of what's a good engineering practice or generally mm -hmm. accepted practice. Mm -hmm. uh, this is all extremely helpful. Uh, yeah. That I was my guess, last. Oh, sorry. I guess I would just add one more thing. <laughs> sorry about that. We've, we've talked, um, you know, when it comes to us, we're doing your um, submitting briefs. And so I think one of the other things that um, Commissioner Atwood and I have talked about is being respectful of the other side and we, and in, in the briefs, or even the PDRs, um, depending on uh, not to be too inflammatory of, of the opposing party, the opposing counsel, um, the opposing client, if you will, um, that it's very important for us to just kind of state your legal rationale as to why this case should be taken um, and not get into sort of the other um, issues in terms of whatever happened at trial and personalities or, or, or the like, because we don't it's, it's not nice for us to read those things. And um, we've had those come up on occasion and it's, it's just, it's a distraction. That's another great tip. And I think that uh, I hear judges constantly reminding practitioners at the bar to uh, improve their efforts towards civility yes. and to stick to the fact and law and let those speak for themselves. 
And I don't think that that reminder can be issued often enough in my day-to-day -day experience. I think that that, uh, that reminder from anybody from the bench and in particular from a commissioner uh, is, is a welcome reminder for all. And so thank you for that last point. You're welcome. Uh, that's, that'll be the last point for today's OSHA 3030. Sure. This, I should point out for everyone, we are pre-recording this on November 15th and we're gonna broadcast this on November 17th in order to accommodate Commissioner Lehau's schedule. So thank you very much for joining us, Commissioner Lehau, despite your busy schedule. Uh, the OSHA 3030 will come back on uh, December 15th, 2021. That'll be our 101st episode. And uh, as many of you know, we rebroadcast all of our programs on YouTube as well as as a podcast. So, so please subscribe on podcasts to your, through your favorite podcast app and check it out on YouTube. This interview with Commissioner Ihow, which is, I think, an invaluable service to the occupational safety and health law community, will be posted likewise on YouTube on our website at khlaw.com as well as, uh, as a podcast. So, so thank you for contributing uh, this invaluable knowledge, Commissioner. Uh, we have sister programs for those organizations that have to comply with other statutes, TSCA or REACH. Our, our uh, TSCA 3030 and REACH 3030 will be broadcast on December 8th. Uh, and those times are posted here, 1 p.m. and, and 1.35 uh, Eastern. So please check those out as well if your organizations are responsible for those uh, compliance with those statutes. That's it for us for this episode. Commissioner, I wanna thank you again. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And thank you all for participating in this month's OSHA 3030. Until we see you next month, stay safe.